before we uh, before we start with the sermon, I have a couple of items to uh, let you know about. Uh, one uh, didn't quite make it into the bulletin in time this week, but uh, on May first, it is going to be May first, right, Darcy? We're going to have a newcomers reception. So those of you who are new to New Hope would like to find out more about uh, our story and how we do what we do and why, and uh, meet some of our leadership. Uh, you're welcome to stay after the service on May first. For a newcomer's reception, we'll have that right here. We'll provide lunch and uh, child care as well. Uh, please RSVP to Darcy so that we know um, what kind of children you might be bringing, how old they are, how well-behaved they are. And, um, uh, and Darcy Bissett's email address. Thank you. Darcy Bissett's email address is on the back uh, where it says Darcy Bissett. And her email address is the one that says Darcy Bissett. Um, the second thing is, uh, as, as uh, most of you know by now, um, our children's director, Kathy Phillips, is going to be leaving us at the end of the month. Um, she has uh, accepted a position at another church in the area, which is uh, their gain and our loss. But uh, the fact that Kathy's leaving uh, gives us an opportunity not only to um, look at who God is leading us to have involved in that ministry in the future, but also to think about the way we structure our children's and youth ministries. We have uh, some of our children aging out of elementary school, which is kind of where we had been ending uh, the ministry that we offered to um, people you know, younger than like 20, as Chris put it. Um, last week, Chris West led us uh, in a very productive exercise um, after, after the service. Uh, thanks to Chris for all his hard work. And, uh, and also to Craig, because Craig Jones uh, helped Chris to type up the voluminous notes that uh, we all generated from that conversation. Um, so you know what's going on with that is we're going to basically put that in a file and not pay any attention to it ever again. Um, the, uh, the elders are going to at some point need to make some decisions about how we structure uh, our children's and youth ministry, what that means in terms of personnel, budget, and so forth. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Darcy Bissett, myself, and Jan Cummer, who's not here this morning, uh, the three of us are coordinating the transition from Kathy's regime to whatever comes next. So if you have any specific questions, specific uh, ideas, people that you want to suggest for involvement in some way, please give that to Darcy or Jan or myself or all of us. Um, our emails were in the E! New Hope that went out, and if you didn't get that, then let me know and I can send them to you. Uh, but, but if you have any, any specific uh, suggestions like that, we really would encourage you uh, to get them to us as we're kind of collating uh, both what we uh, came up with at the family meeting and also other ideas that have come to us uh, during, the, uh, during the weeks. And um, we will be keeping you all posted on, uh, on this process as it goes. The main thing that you should know is that really the only decision we've made as elders is that we are going to try to hear from God as to what he's going to have us do. We trust that the Spirit will guide us in the decisions we need to make. We haven't decided anything in terms of what particular structure we're going to have or what people are going to be involved uh, or, or anything like that. So we, um, we want very much to uh, say that we covet your prayers as we make the decisions we have to make uh, in, in the coming, uh, coming weeks as well. So that's where we're at. Again, any questions, don't hesitate to let us know. So there are some passages of Scripture that will really test your theology. We read here in, uh, in Psalm 119. 
starting in verse 105. I think there's a song about this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I've suffered much. Preserve my life, O Yahweh, according to your word. Accept, O Yahweh, the willing praise of my mouth, and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They're the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. And that's just eight verses out of a psalm that goes 179 of them. All about God's law. All about His Torah. That's what we're spending the year going through here at New Hope. And it's basically this gigantically long and beautiful love letter to this law that God has given. And the Apostle Paul, writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, right at the end of his life, Paul's not long before he gets beheaded, sitting in a dungeon, writes this letter to Timothy, his lieutenant. He says, Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, the kind of stuff that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, all the persecutions that I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul writes this somewhere around 62-63 A.D. to Timothy. Anybody know how old Timothy would have been around then? Paul first met him around 50. Timothy would have been a teenager at the time. So Timothy's probably about 30 or so when Paul writes this to him. So Paul writes this in 63. There's a little math in the morning. And Timothy's 30. Around when would Timothy have been born? Actually, Jesus would be an acceptable answer here. He's probably born somewhere around when Jesus died, right? Paul says, from infancy, you've known the Holy Scriptures. And we read in Acts, when Paul first encounters Timothy, that uh, although Timothy's father was a Gentile, his mother was uh, a Jew and a believer. So when Paul says to Timothy, from infancy, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. How how much of the New Testament had been written when Timothy was coming up? What? Bupkis, yeah. Yeah. In fact, most of the Gospels probably had not even been written by the time Paul is writing 
this letter to Timothy. And even if perhaps Matthew's gospel had been, it may not have circulated as far as Timothy by that point. We don't know. Obviously, by that point, most of Paul's letters had been written. But what we think of today as Scripture includes both the Old and the New Testaments. What the New Testament authors refer to as Scripture, and Jesus does the same thing, right? He says, you know, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle of this law passes away. Jesus is referring to Torah, the Old Testament, right? So we are told by people that we should pay attention to, like Jesus and Paul, that all Scripture is profitable, that none of it is going to pass away until all things are accomplished. And then we open up our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 14 and 15 today. And we read, beginning in Parshat Matzorah, at the beginning, Yahweh said to Moses, these are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. All scripture is profitable. Let's figure out just how. (laughs) As a reminder of where we are, we are in the book of Leviticus. We have in Torah five books, the five books of Moses. We have Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then Leviticus, where we've been, we have the first seven chapters. Anybody remember what happened in the first seven chapters? First seven delicious chapters of Leviticus? Lots of grilling. Yes, lots of grilling and chilling in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. All about sacrifices, right? And, and in, in the case of those who are not able to afford to bring uh, a large animal, you still get to grill pancakes. Um, and then in chapters 8 through 10, we have the ordination of the people who do said grilling. So ordination of Bobby Flay et al. The ordination of the priests. The Aaronic priesthood, right? We have God setting aside an entire tribe of his people, the Levites, the descendants of Levi, they're the ones who are responsible for the service in the temple, for bringing the people's uh, offerings, for uh, making sure that the proper protocols are followed. And in the case of Nadav and Avihu, what do we find out happens if you don't follow the proper protocols? Yeah, you, you just might burst into flame. Uh, so it's, it's like being the drummer for a spinal tap. It's fairly hazardous. Um, to, uh, to, so we, you know, in chapter 10, right, we saw Nadav and Avihu decided they would do a little improvisation in the offering of the incense, and uh, that made it very clear to everybody who followed after that you don't want to do that. So here we have in chapter 11, chapters 11 through 15, the section we're in now that has to do with ritual purity. Now, later on, we get to 16... Is Yom Kippur, 17 is all about blood, uh, 18 through 25 is uh, various laws, 26 uh, is going to have to do with, uh, with uh, rewards and punishments, this is God kind of summing everything up and 
saying exactly what happens if you obey and what happens if you don't. And then 27 has to do with tithes. But uh, in 11 through 15, ritual purity, we have here, chapter 11. Anybody remember what 11 was out about? What you can eat, kashrut. Basically, 11 is all about the food laws. 12 is about what? Childbirth. 13 and 14 are about leprosy. And not just leprosy, leprosy and mildew. Good times. And then 15 is about what? We haven't gotten to it yet. Anybody know? Any advanced students have done the work ahead of time? Bodily discharges. We're going to work with this euphemism, bodily discharges. Good times. All right. Um, so we have bodily discharges in chapter 15, having spent two chapters lovingly going through regulations for leprosy and mildew. The question arises for us, what on earth do we have to do with this stuff? Right? I mean, these are laws that are given to people roughly 3,200 years ago so that they can live as part of a nation utterly dedicated to God constitutionally, liturgically. They are part of a people that is God's. He has called them out. He's saved them out of slavery, taken them out of a place that they couldn't have gotten out of themselves. And he is about to install them in a place that they couldn't, you know, he's basically getting them some real estate they wouldn't have been able to get into themselves either. Right now, they're in the desert en route from point A to point B. And he is giving them his Torah. He's giving them his law as to how they're going to live, right? Back in Exodus, he lays out some very basic principles in the Ten Commandments. He gives them extensive regulations about how to build this tabernacle, how to build a... a uh, a temple, a, a tabernacle of worshiping uh, tent so that they can present their worship acceptably to him. And then here in Leviticus, he's giving them a whole bunch of different laws, both about sacrifice and then about how they're going to function as a society. And so part of that has to do with how you eat, what you do after childbirth, how you handle leprosy and mildew in the days before Lysol, and bodily discharges. Now, the reason for some of these regulations, as I think we talked about last week some, uh, can be difficult to discern. I was talking with uh, Bruce. Bruce, uh, by the way, Bruce Cummer, your tax dollars at work, uh, employee of the Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, Bruce loves this part of Leviticus because it's the first public health ordinances that we find. So some of this stuff has to do with protecting the health of the community. The person with leprosy has to basically go around and, and tell everybody else, look, I'm unclean, you've got to stay away. You have laws about quarantine, a way, making, a way of making sure that people who have diseases don't spread them to others, right? Um, so maybe that's part of what's going on, but it's not all of it, because some of these regulations from a public health perspective, are just kind of arbitrary. They don't really make that much of a difference. Same thing with the laws of kashrut. I mean, 
yeah, if you ate pig back in the day, you were more at risk of getting trichinosis than you are today. Now, you wouldn't know that because pretty much everybody cooks pork to death now, but actually you don't have to. You can, you know, cook it uh, uh, less than thoroughly charred. But there are some people who say, well, yeah, if you look at some of these animals that, that are prohibited, they carry parasites uh, or, or they may be less healthy. But again, that only works for some of them. For others, it just seems to be an arbitrary distinction. One of the most giant arbitrary distinctions that uh, we find in here is the one we had we talked about last week. In chapter 12, when we're talking about childbirth, a woman who gives birth to a boy is, uh, has to be left alone for a week. A woman who gives birth to a girl has to be left alone for two weeks. If she gives birth to a boy, she can't go to the temple for another 33 days, total of 40 days. She gives birth to a girl, she can't go to the temple for 80 days. Why? I don't know. I read an article this week, back from 1933. There, in fact, was a, a Hopkins physician who wrote an article that was published in the, in the Journal of Biblical Literature in which he shared the results of his research, finding that, in fact, there are certain toxins in the blood of a woman who has given birth and that there are m- more of those toxins in the blood of a woman who has given birth to a girl than has given birth to a boy. But not a lot more. <laughs> We're talking like 84% as opposed to 78%. I mean, it, it's statistically significant, but really not that big a deal. So that's probably not it. Public health, personal hygiene, there are some benefits there. Certainly when, when you're talking about leprosy and mildew, you know, it's not a bad idea if you find mildew to... Try not to get anything else to touch it. Go back, see if it's still growing. If it's still growing, you want to take care of that. You need to scrape it all away. And uh, if it hasn't, then maybe it's dead and you may, you're probably going to be all right. Uh, but, again, some of those, you're looking at them, and you say, yeah, this just seems kind of arbitrary. And we get some of that, too, with Chapter 15, with bodily discharges. If you have... Uh, one of these Bibles that was written by decorous and civilized people. It will be translated something like, Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any man has a bodily discharge, the discharge is unclean. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it will make him unclean. This is how his discharge will bring about uncleanness. Right? Folks, this is not talking about zits. It's not talking about what happens when you pick a scab Right? Bodily discharges has to do um, with things that come out of your genitals, both men and women, this whole chapter. Right? So in your mind, whenever you read this, you just substate bodily dis- discharges, stuff coming out of your genitals. I don't write this stuff. I'm just telling you what it is. You really have a question about this? <laughs> His brother loves the word. What can I say? Please, please. Um, well, no, it's probably talking about uh, things that would come out that you would not otherwise expect to come out, uh, and semen. All right. Um, the well, let me let me break this down for you. <laughs> No, indeed. No, no drawings. Thank you. 
So we have, what color shall I use for this? Let's use blue. Was it, I think it was Sarah, was it Sarah Vowell? Anybody who's heard her like on that, uh, uh, on this, I think she has stuff for, for This American Life, talked about when she had her first period and she was shocked to find out that it wasn't blue like in all the ads. Uh, so here we have in chapter 15, actually a brilliantly constructed literary phenomenon known as, well, I'll let that be a quiz, see if you guys noted it. All right, so here we have in chapter 15, verses 1, make sure I get this right, verses 1 through 15 has to do with a man having a bodily discharge. And the kind of bodily discharge we're talking about is an unusual bodily discharge, gonorrhea probably. Um, but could be any of a number of other diseases, which if you would like to look in the biblical and medical literature, you're welcome to explore at your leisure. Chapter one, or chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, is all about what happens to a man who has an unusual discharge, how you diagnose it, how you take care of it, how you go through the process of becoming clean again from that so that you can be what? Part of the community, right? Because if you are unclean, you're not able to go to the temple and bring worship, right? One of the reasons it's very important that you do that. You think about the story of Jesus talking to the woman who had this bleeding disease, right? Chapter, this is chapter uh, 9 of Matthew. I'll give you the short version. The other Gospels take it a little longer. I'll give you the short one. Just then, uh, he's in this crowd. The woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. Now we can look at that and say, oh, what a nice story. Jesus heals somebody. If she had had a bleeding disorder for 12 years, that's 12 years that she can't go to Jerusalem for the festivals. 12 years that she can't bring her offerings. 12 years that she is prevented from being able to worship God and from being fully part of the community. Right? Fairly big deal. So chapter 15, 1 through 15, has to do with uh, an unusual discharge and how that uh, would get you to a state of ritual impurity and how you get out of that into a state of ritual purity so that you're accepted again. And as we talked about last week, we what do I have a mouse in my pocket? As I talked about last week, we have a, a situation where um, purity and impurity are not the same as being right or wrong or sinful or not sinful or morally straight or bent, right? There, there are some categories that are just arbitrary that have to do with whether you are able to bring your worship acceptably or not. There's this idea of holiness that God is constructing that may, might be different from what we would do. I'm going to default to God having a better idea than we do on that, at least for now. So verses 16 through 17 then, Right, having gone through all the stuff about being cleansed from an unusual discharge, when a man has, has an emission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water, and he'll be unclean till the evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water, and it will be unclean till evening, unless it needs to be retained for the sake of Ken Starr's hearing. So, 16 and 17, we have a man with a normal discharge. 
which is the sort of thing that just very well might happen in the course of normal married life. Say that again? Penicillin had not been around at that point. And then we have in verse 18, when a man lies with a woman and there is an emission of semen, both must bathe with water and they will be unclean until evening. Man and woman, normal discharge. And then in verses 19 through 24, we have a woman, normal menstrual cycle, normal discharges for a woman. And then verses 25 to 30 have to do with a woman having an unusual discharge. And then wrapping up uh, this chapter in 31 to 33, as we're going to see, is kind of a, a summary. But if we look just at this part here, where it's going through all the details, what we see is that the heart of the chapter is verse 18 here. Anybody, anybody know what this literary structure is? Yes, Bruce. What? Chasmic, not, you're close. Yeah. A, a, a chasm is like when you have a cliff here and another cliff here. Okay, that's a chasm. A chiasm, which is what you're looking for. Oh, I didn't hear the eye. Okay, a chiasm basically comes from the Greek letter he, right? Chai, if you went through the, the Greek system. Uh, but a chiasm basically is a situation where you have uh, things going in one direction and then going back in the other. So you, oftentimes this will be marked A, B, C, B prime, A prime. And the point of a chiastic structure, the re, and these show up all over the Bible. You get it in Old and New Testament, not just the Bible, too, other literature. But, but the, the significance of a chiastic structure is it's designed to draw your attention to the focal point, the farthest out point of that portion of text. And the, the reason that it does this, it sets this up, it's basically saying this is the really important thing. This is what all of this is about. So this is where... I, as the author of this, am trying to draw your focus right here in verse 18. Again, I will read verse 18 to you. Yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but that's another word that's used to describe this. Thank you, dear. man lies with a woman and there is an emission of semen. Both must bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. This is the most ordinary, the most normal, the most usual of situations in which there will be genital discharge. This is the main thing that's going on. 
yeah, you're going to get the other stuff going on. And yeah, unfortunately, some folks, especially before penicillin, are going to be dealing with the unusual discharges. But what the author is trying to say is this, which incidentally is good, not bad, right? You're not going to get any more Israelites if this isn't going on. This right here is to be separate from worship that goes on in the temple, right? If we're all about separating the holy and the unholy, the sacred and profane, this is profane. Not profane in a bad way like profanity on television or whatever. This is just common. It's not sanctified. Why might that be important? Yes, Kristen. Right? Yeah. Right. Very, very good, Kristen. That, I think, I think that's, probably, that's probably the reason for this. Might not be. Again, this could just be sort of an arbitrary look. I'm going to make it clear. God says there's going to be holy, there's going to be unholy. I'm not going to explain why all of it is. You just got to follow holy and unholy. But, but at the time that this was written, right, if, if you look at what was going on in the neighborhood, you had all sorts of ways that the gods were worshipped that involved ritual sexual acts cultic prostitution and there are places where basically if you had a daughter before she could even be married and start her own life she had to do duty in the temple in order to ensure the fertility of your crops and those of your neighbors that's just what you did you had to do it whether you wanted it or not whether she wanted it or not that was what you had to do you have people for whom the the normal course of worship involved sexual activity. And so it could be that God is making it clear, look, of all the ways I'm going to be worshipped, that's not it. Right? That is not how we roll. There, there are other things going on that people would do as part of worship, like child sacrifice. Also, not how we're going to do things. But God, remember, is taking his people out of a situation where for 400 years they have been in slavery in Egypt, living in uh, as, as the lowest of the low, in one of the world's great superpowers at the time. He's bringing them out of that to the place where they are going to be self-governing under his authority, where they're going to be given all the things they need in order to live well for him, right? Not just so that they can live well, which would be pretty cool in and of itself, but because they are part of God's mission of cosmic reconciliation. They are being blessed in order to be a blessing. big part of that is for them to be able to bring worship acceptably, and for them to do the na- normal daily things that we do in life and to have that be part of the way that their community is structured. What's interesting to me as I look at this and I think about this idea of dividing the holy and the unholy, the sacred and the profane, a lot of times we think about holy, you know, and you, you think, you know, the halo or you think the, you know, the person who is especially prayerful. In a lot of ways that that root uh, in Hebrew mostly has to do with setting things apart, right? That which is holy is that which is set apart for a particular purpose. And so it's interesting in, in Hebrews 13, this is in the, in the New Testament, the author says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept holy. 
may say pure in your translation, but it's the, it's the marriage bed kept holy. For God will judge the adulterer and, and all the sexually immoral. There's a sense, a sort of different sense of holiness or set-apartness that certainly is applicable for what the author of Leviticus is talking about here in verse 18. So, as we think about holiness, as we think about what is sacred and what is profane, what is holy and unholy, we need to make sure we don't take categories from the Old Testament and bring them into the New Testament without transposing them. Because, as we'll remember, as we're talking about how we do this, right, we had what happened then, what is going on now, and in the middle we have Jesus. In Jesus... All of these laws about ritual purity, all these laws about what makes you acceptable or unacceptable in uh, your ability to bring worship to God and to be part of the community, all this stuff gets exploded. There are some other things that don't get exploded, but all this stuff about ritual purity ends up, when the veil is torn, in many ways evaporating because it has been fulfilled. But in this situation, it's important that the people hear what God says to Moses and to Aaron, that you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. Why? Because it's icky? No. So that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my tabernacle, which is among them. Because you may remember, back in chapter 10, a couple guys decided that they were going to do their own thing, and they died. We had a little bit of that coming before this. We're going to get some more stories about this, where people decide that they have a better idea of how things ought to be done than God does, and they meet a very unpleasant end. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. Because what's really radical about this is not just that God is inviting his people to be properly holy, to be properly set apart so that they can worship him. They are coming to worship him in his tent, in his tabernacle, in his dwelling place, which is among them. So, his presence, his holy divine presence, is right there in the midst of them. You may hear some echoes there of the New Testament, if you're paying attention. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there is much in your word that we find difficult to understand. And we we do not want to do like the folks that Peter talked about in his second letter. We don't want to distort any of that certainly not to our own destruction. We pray that we would be faithful hearers and readers of your word. We pray that we would be attentive, that we would be patient, that we would be humble, and that we would be grateful to receive what you have for us in this holy word that you have given us. We pray that especially as we go through some of the more challenging passages in Torah, 
that you would give us eyes to see what your spirit has inspired in these words. Give us ears to hear. Open us to receive from you what you have for us. We pray that this would be for the building of your church, for the enhancing of your reputation, and for our own growth as people who follow Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.